Welcome to the Holding History Podcast, a series of bookish conversations about the fascinating and sometimes puzzling ways that we record, share, and preserve cultural knowledge. In each episode, a brilliant guest expert helps us tell new stories about old and sometimes odd media. While every conversation is different, we return to one particular question. What makes a collection special? My co-host is Sarah Marty, director of the Bolt Center for Arts Administration at the University of Wisconsin School of Business. She grew up riding horses with her cousins on the family farm in Greene County, Wisconsin, and pretending she was on the show Bonanza. My co-host is Joshua Calhoun, professor in the Department of English and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. Josh loves traveling cross-country and reading on Amtrak trains. Today's guest is Kurt Miney. Kurt is, among other things, a conservation biologist, environmental historian, writer, and senior fellow at the Aldo Leopold Foundation in Baraboo, Wisconsin. Last summer, Kurt invited us to his farmhouse in the Driftless region of western Wisconsin for what was our first in-person interview for the show. Unlike most of the Midwest, the Driftless was never covered by glaciers. So instead of prairie land, it's more of a forested plateau with springs and gorges. And Kurt's farm sits right in the middle. It was a beautiful drive for our first podcast field trip. The Driftless was also the home of Aldo Leopold, a giant of 20th century conservation and environmental writing and author of A Sand County Almanac. Leopold was also a UW professor. He's kind of like our Alexander von Humboldt. You can't go far in Wisconsin without seeing a road, a school, or a cafe named after him. And some of that ubiquity is due to Kurt. He was an early biographer of Leopold, and he's worked for years to make Leopold's life legible and accessible to new and future audiences. Now, a lot of that work happens at the Elder Leopold Foundation, where Kurt and his colleagues preserve Leopold's written archive, as well as the biological and architectural archives that we touch on in this interview. Yeah, we wanted to talk to Kurt in his capacity as an archivist, but it quickly became clear that for Kurt, the lines between environmental conservation and archival preservation are blurry if they exist at all. I'm thinking about how this interview fits on our broader season, and one interesting departure is that Kurt is decidedly grounded in the here and now. We spent less time talking about the future of archives and more time considering our own preservation impulses. He's hardly an anti-technology Luddite, but our conversation with him centered around the physical presence, the touchability of a landscape that can't be digitized. So Josh, since your own research is tied so closely to environmental studies, do you have a favorite part of this interview? I do, and it's actually tied to my research in Renaissance studies. (laughs) I enjoyed talking to Kurt about Aldo Leopold, but I'll admit that my favorite part was our conversation about Madeline Doran's nature poetry and about curiosity versus intention in the archives. Doran was a Shakespeare professor at the University of Wisconsin from 1935 to 1975, When I was working on my PhD, I read and and just loved her book, Endeavors of Art. It was one of my favorites. So when I got the job at UW, I felt truly humbled to join a department that she once taught in. And I was especially uh, appreciative of our conversation about Doran's nature writing and about her archive and about our own sense of duty to the archives of others. I wasn't familiar with her work, and it made me want to learn more about her time at UW and her own writing. Um, It was a wonderful experience visiting and talking with Kurt Miney, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Kurt, where are we? Seems like a simple question, doesn't it? (laughs) And I, in my own head, and I think many of us do this either consciously or subconsciously, we see ourselves in nested bowls of space. (laughs) And here we are in this room that has been here for 30 years, but we're attached to a farmhouse that's been here for 
150 years on a prairie landscape that's been here for about 8,000 years on a valley that was carved out 17,000 years ago, amid sandstone bluffs that are 400, 450 million years old. <laughs> so we're nested in, in these places. And then we can take that out to the furthermost cosmos, right? So here we are. This is about a memory. Do you have a, um, a memory? And let's touch in with the, you know, working as a, as a graduate student in the Leopold archive, a moment where you found something there that gave you this vista on Leopold's life that, you know, may, maybe that document shouldn't have even been kept, but there it was before you and you saw something you couldn't have seen. Yes. There was such a moment uh, with Aldo Leopold. Um, I was a master's student, not sure what the heck I was doing. <laughs> but I went down and uh, Leopold's papers are very well organized and um, described and documented and uh, technical terms, finder's aid uh, for an archival collection. And I familiarized myself and then I went back and sat in the little desk way back in the stacks. It's like a little catacombs down there. And I found these boxes and I had, at that point, free reign of them. Um, there was no digital version. <laughs> you just sat and took boxes off. So there is a box. Well, there's a whole series. Uh, imagine a, a wall of paper as high as the ceiling here and about as large as my, the bookshelf behind me here. Uh, and I became a little familiar with it. And I pulled out one box and it's series 10, six box 16. I can still remember the, <laughs> the index number. And this was the collection of Leopold's unpublished manuscripts. Many of them were kept in his desk. Uh, he used Leopold's term for this was the cooler. When he was writing on something and he didn't think it was ready for sharing or publishing, he put it in the cooler. <laughs> And it would stay in the cooler, some cases, for years. These, some of these unpublished manuscripts were, at that point, already 20, 30 years old. And so these were unpublished materials seen only by other Leopold scholars, really. And there were only a handful of us. And it was mind-blowing. It was mind-blowing because it was so fresh and so insightful and uh, relevant and just pouring through these series. Man, sometimes it's just a scribble on a scrap of paper. Sometimes they were well-developed, thoughtful, full essays. Sometimes they were you know, edited over and over and over and over again, and you could really get a sense of this individual's thought processes. But uh, this is back in the 1980s, and uh, we were beginning to think about all the issues that we're still dealing with today and it was jaw-dropping to be able to read these these scribblings of uh, a really you know, provocative thinker and say wow and I had I just did that I just said a few times and just stopped and just and I think that was my moment I wasn't very conscious of it but I was very aware that wow this is some powerful stuff that really should be shared. It really, should, I mean, it could be very hopeful. <laughs> As someone who spent so much time with Leopold, what's something the average listener might not know about him or his archive? Hmm. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that although Leopold died suddenly and unexpectedly when he was only 61 years old, 
So he was not conscious of himself as having an archive. Mm -hmm. Yet, however, he was a very, as I mentioned earlier, very organized human. <laughs> he kept his own stuff in a very clear... And one reason he was an effective writer and thinker is because he was very well organized. So uh, this quick story is that he, he was fortunate in having a series of scholars come along and family members. <laughs> his family members were keepers. Um, so we have, for example, his very detailed collection of his childhood letters that his mother kept. And these are, uh, from a biographer's standpoint, invaluable. Um, and so there's been a series of scholars who've come along to help build that collection. I enjoy taking students um, using our, on the UW-Madison campus, our Leopold collection in our special collections. And one of the things that's really easy to show them is that when we think of them, well, this is the Leopold collection, right? It has this name stamped on it. And as soon as you start going through the files, there are so many other names that really, so much uh, correspondence, so many letters, so many articles being collected and, and data being collected and, and citizen science uh, that Leopold relied upon. These are the sorts of things that you know might, might make up a personal archive, but are so related to so many other people. And in Leopold's case, it's, of course, extraordinarily important to say Leopold's community wasn't just the people and the institutions. It was the birds and the plants and the water and the soil and the mountain and the trees. It was all the living things that he considered as part of the human community and the human community is a part of that. So his archive collects not just his human interactions in a sense, but at least the impressions of the living world around us on him. And uh, so it may be a, a, the archives of naturalists and scientists and wisdom keepers and in indigenous traditions are different than, than uh, pure scholars of the humanities or human affairs in that they do consciously and unconsciously try to bring in the non or more than human world into the, into the community. I'm wondering and thinking about that beautifully poetic description of his archive, if you might be able to share with our listeners a little bit about the shack and the property, the property here in this place and, and this time. How is that an archive, and how is that Leopold's archive? So we, okay, yeah, well, we record our uh, experiences not just through words on a written page, but we record them through all the, all the things and material items we leave behind, um, and that can include anything uh, that is physical, um, and buildings are part of our heritage and legacy whether they're temporary or not. Um, Leopold is famous for uh, celebrating the interactions with the living world around his little shack, his little abandoned chicken coop that he and his family restored. Uh, it was not much to it, and there still isn't much to it, but that's, you know, the gift of writing is to be able to bring out the the wonder in any place like Leopold did. And um, so land is an archive. Soil is an archive. It records us. It's where we lodge our own memories and experiences and ultimately ourselves. So um, the shack is a modest place, but like all buildings is uh, impermanent, uh, as like all things are impermanent. 
We can go down the, you know, Leopold is 30 miles up the river from where we're sitting. If we go 15 miles down the river the other way, we go to Frank Lloyd Wright's house, another iconic figure of the Wisconsin River Valley in Wisconsin. And his house is celebrated all over the world, Taliesin, the shining brow under the hill. Guess what? Frank Lloyd Wright was not into permanence. <laughs> and it's a constant challenge to those taking care of Taliesin to figure out what the hell do we do? He didn't build it to last. He didn't think it should last. But we like to preserve things. So it's a paradox, a built-in paradox of preserving the impermanent. Um, and so at, at all our structures are, are, are part of our record, but like all parts, they're also uh, not going to be around forever. And yet we still want to hold on to them to see what value we can gain from them. I have a follow-up question. So I wonder if you'd say just a little bit about how you knew Madeline Doran. We have a, a uh, an audio archive of, of some of her talks, and there's quite an archive of, of her work. Uh, but before we talk about how people use her archive now, just you might say because you, you didn't, you weren't interacting with her in the archives like you were Leopold, but your life does is contingent. Well, it was just a little bit of an overlap and connection, but it's a one that. It's very meaningful to me when I look back on it. I remember a day I was moving out of her house after she got back from California. She gifted me two copies of her books of poetry, and I have them upstairs still. And uh, I'm remembering in particular Time's Arrow. Um, Time's Foot. Time's Foot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but she has an, uh, a poem in there that is I th yeah. that uses the phrase Time's Arrow, and I remember that stuck with stuck with me i ended up using it later on i uh oh yeah i wrote a essay for isthmus in madison uh on the 70th anniversary of the arboretum and i used her essay in that because it had to do with the directionality of time and you can't go backward and how do you go forward it was kind of the theme of that poem it's very pertinent to people dealing with land restoration if we're doing ecological restoration as we do right outside the doors here um, with my neighbor, you can't go backward to the prairie that was Castle Prairie or the prairies of southern Wisconsin or the world as it existed anywhere in the world in the past. You can, can't go that direction with Times Arrow. You can only go forward. Um, so Madeline, uh, I've, I've kept those two books of poetry very close ever since. I've never been far from the evening bedstand, you know, and occasionally I dip into them because that's, again, what poetry helps us do it. Uh, we reread it, reread it and reread it and find the new and different meanings in our own lives responding to it. So um, I have to reread it again tonight, apparently, to see <laughs> what new things I might have learned about myself since the last time I read it. So while at UW-Madison, I've been able to explore the personal archives of both Leopold and Doran, and I find myself thinking about the ways we use personal archives to ask the kind of questions that matter most to us in the present. For example, one of the ways that Madeline Doran's archive is being looked at now is around questions of sexuality and in regard to her relationships with other important female scholars of her generation. People are interested in that in the present, and it makes me wonder, what's our responsibility to the archive of another person? What's fair to ask? It's not the life, it's the remains of the life. Um, <laughs> it's like the glaciers. We don't see glaciers in Wisconsin anymore, but we see what they left behind yeah. or didn't leave behind. Driftless landscapes versus drifted landscapes. Yeah. 
there's a tangent that I probably shouldn't have gone on to, but again, um, similarly, archives give you some of the rec record of the life, some of the, uh, some of what the life left behind, but they don't tell you who that person was, what conflicts and challenges they faced, what their identity was even. You have to be able to fill that in with your imagination and your sensitivity and your insights as best you can muster them. So um, when it comes to thinking about, in this case, Madeline Doran, I knew her as a long-retired older scholar yeah. and filled in gaps as I went along saying, oh, well, she was quite <laughs> influential key person. And because I did spend a little time with her having coffee and lunch and mm -hmm. visiting with her, I got to know a little bit more of who she was. So, um, you know, knowing what she was interested in, what she was exploring and who she was exploring with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, in this case, she was. She was going out with some very dear friends to her um, who were other leading women in, in her world. Yeah. I don't know enough about her mm -hmm. to, to speculate. And it's, why should we speculate? She was who she was. I think the question is the danger. You know, there's a sense of danger in the archives of your seeding. I mean, a good personal archive is a wonderful thing to have, but you're seeding interpretation to a later period. And to build on that, earlier you mentioned the idea of a consciously curated archive versus an accidental archive. So if you layer those things on top of it, there, as you said, there really is a danger. Aha. Well, now you're getting into the point of dipping into these records, these piles of records, with intention versus with curiosity. So a bio I was a biographer of Leopold and conscious of the fact that I was also doing a first biography of this historic figure. And that put me in a different position than being a scholar looking to make an argument. <laughs> if, you're, if you're making an argument, you, fall, you run the risk of cherry picking. Things that will support what you want to say about this or that issue. If you're a biographer, you're going with an open, hopefully an open heart and head and saying, who was this person and how can I tell the story? But going back to the, the opening of my comment here is uh, when you go at it with curiosity, you're looking to connect dots. You're not looking for the dot that is going to prove your point and you can put it into the argument. You're saying, what is the whole of this person and how did this person emerge, grow and evolve? Yeah. And that's a common thing to all of us. That's what we all try to do in understanding other people. We just try to understand who this person is if we care. So that's what I was attempting to do with Leopold was not to pick out this or that key thing because there were a lot of beautiful things, but I was looking to say, how can I paint a portrait that is true to the record, but also obviously through my own lens. Um, so what makes the Leopold archive harder, easy to collect, to preserve, and to share? The Leopold archive as a, as a kind of an example of an archive is in a sense one of the easier ones because he's a well-known figure and people have been attentive to his life and his record. It also has the advantage of having been digitized. One of the first collections anywhere, actually, I think maybe Darwin and uh, Jefferson or someone else or some <laughs> other figures that there were early efforts to digitize their, their records. Leopold, uh, through a National Endowment for the Humanities grant, uh, became an object of digitizing Boy, I think it's almost 20 years ago now. Uh, that has changed the access, obviously, and 
I don't know what to make of it because it's a good thing. It gives access and you don't have to physically handle the materials anymore. On the other hand, there's a visceral thing that comes when you're right there with the actual paper, when you're there with the actual ink on the paper and pencil and you see the living reality of, of Leopold's hand or you see the fire scars on the little notebook he had in his pocket the day he died and by fire. Um, so um, it's, it's uh, maybe no different than any other collection of uh, archival materials uh, for other people, but um, maybe with Leopold there is a little extra special kind of uh, cachet to them because you really do get a sense of him not just being in a library, but him in his places. Mm -hmm. um, and understanding that, in my case, a biography is not just the story of a person. It's the story of a person in a place. Mm -hmm. If we think about young environmental thinkers, writers, uh, what does a Greta Thunberg archive look like? What, what will we save now that we didn't save? What will be in that archive that, that, that isn't in the Leopold archive, that couldn't have been in Leopold archive, that was, that we don't value anymore as you think about a future archive for a young uh, a, a young and influential environmental writer or thinker how do you think the, ar the archive will look different you know i tend to think that the things that are really important will still be somehow recorded or kept um we may not have uh the hundreds of letters but i know in my own practice I don't do this often, but every once in a while I get an email that I print out mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I put in my physical files. Yeah. Not often, but that tells me, oh, that one was important enough that I felt a need to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that wheat and chaff will still be separating um, in new and different ways. We don't know how, but but now we have, we're in this, yeah, we don't know. None of us knows because we're in a whole new era and... Are we going to go back to keeping things more in the oral tradition? Maybe. Maybe that's a good thing. And I know among my native friends who have lost their oral traditions but clung on to them tenaciously despite anything we can imagine now, that is their ballast culturally. Um, we talk to our Ho-Chunk friends and neighbors here. Talk to any native group anywhere. The language is your archive. The language contains the wisdom and the knowledge. The elders hold your wisdom and your knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, um, and your regalia, <laughs> all, all of the artifacts hold your culture. So all our artifacts will hold our culture going forward. And how that, what form that takes, I don't know. Many new forms, but maybe some surviving old forms. Um, and maybe we will combine our oral uh, or other ways of conveying information in different ways with the old-fashioned keeping of physical artifacts. Um, maybe it's just we're going to combine them in new and different ways. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> but take my answer down and keep it because I want to know in 50 years if some scholar will say, hey, you was right on target. <laughs> We can uh, we can generate a transcript and email you a hard copy. You can print out and put in your files. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right, right. 
yeah, yeah, we talked about the, the the balance between legacy and liability in a personal archive, and, and that maybe is what it's all about in the end is continuity, um, and especially now in times of uncertainty, some would say chaos, but certainly rapid and unprecedented rates of change in the world around us and in our society, we need continuity more than ever. We need to know that we're coming from something and we're going to be passing on our reality <laughs> to the future, whoever holds it. So um, archives uh, are a, maybe in that sense, it's some conscious and subconscious way of saying we're doing this because we value continuity. Um, and in that collection, we find part of ourselves that allows us to keep our own continuity, our own sanity, we might say now, um, amid very disorienting times and places. Thank you to our guest, Kurt Miney. And if you find yourself in Wisconsin, take a drive out to the Leopold Center and see this living archive in person. Each episode ends with the bookish word, where student curators tell the story of a weird word from the history of books and media. And if you like books, you'll love this week's bookish word, bibliophile. My bookish word is, of course, a bibliophile. Now, while it is a very typical bookish word, it happens to be one of my favorite words. For those of you who don't know what a bibliophile is, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a bibliophile is a lover of books, especially for qualities of format, or in other words, a book collector. In my eyes, a bibliophile's dream would probably include a library in their house with built-in floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, a rolling ladder to reach the top of those shelves, and of course, comfy chairs to read those books in. Other words similar to a bibliophile, as listed by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, are bibliophilic, an adjective, Bibliophilism, a noun, and bibliophilie, also a noun. The term bibliophile was first used in the 1820s in France, but the first time I ever heard this word was in 8th grade while learning about prefixes and suffixes, and that's when I knew I was a bibliophile. The word bibliophile comes from the Greek words biblion, meaning book, and philos, meaning loving. It is also said that philos could have meant friend, meaning a bibliophile is someone who considered books to be their true friends, as stated by Vocabulary.com. I think saying that books are a bibliophile's true friends is an amazing way of putting it. In my opinion, when you read a book and are truly immersed in it, it is only natural to imagine yourself in between the pages with your favorite characters. As said by Cornelia Funk in her book, Inkart, books loved anyone who opened them. They gave you security and friendship and didn't ask for anything in return. They never went away, never, not even when you treated them badly. That's the end of this chapter. I'm Joshua Calhoun. And I'm Sarah Marty. Our theme music is by Luke Levitt, and our associate producer is Tom Van Camp. The Bookish Word was conceived, created, and recorded by Sarah Bolvin. Support for this podcast was provided by a University of Wisconsin-Madison Baldwin Seed Grant and Friends of UW-Madison Libraries. Learn more about Holding History at holdinghistory.org.